1: Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 9 and 10.
0: Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white. Well, I'll get to the garments in a minute. Uh, His admonition, go thy way... Is in effect saying, "Don't sit around and brood. Get up and live." Is what he's really saying. Yes, death's coming, but God gives us good gifts to enjoy, to enjoy, so enjoy them. And uh, you know Solomon, of course, like uh, as you can imagine, sat down to a daily feast. We see that recorded in First Kings four and elsewhere. But you know there is evidence that Solomon himself didn't enjoy it much. You get the impression that he had a lot of. Meals he did not enjoy. In Proverbs fifteen seventeen he says, Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. That's the NIV version of that. In uh, Proverbs seventeen it opens up with better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. <laughs> For Solomon to say something like that suggests at least that he must have experienced some of those. When we get to verse 8, he's going to suggest that we should enjoy every occasion. Let thy garments be always white. Let thy head lack no ointment. See, they wore their white garments as a symbol of joy. They anointed themselves with perfumes and such instead of the usual olive oil on special occasions. And when these occasions came, they really made the most of them. So what Solomon's saying, in effect, what he's saying here, always wear white garments and anoint yourself always with special perfume. We must not express our Thanksgiving and our joy only when celebrating special events. Let me give you a practical result. There are many people that get gorgeous silver settings as a wedding gift. And then you put them away and use them what? Five or six times in your lifetime? Do they ever wear out? Hardly. Why not use your best silver every day? Maybe not literally, but that's the spirit of what Solomon's saying. Uh, If you want to put it in the Latin, carpe diem. Seize the day. Every day is an opportunity. And it's strange that he would come to that focus by emphasizing that death is certain. So we've got so many days, make the most of them, in effect. (laughs) Paul said the same thing. He said, uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Solomon continues, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. In other words, make the most of the days you have, is really what he's saying. You know, he's not saying for us to join the fast track or the jet set and uh, start looking for exotic uh, pleasures in faraway places. Instead, he's going to list. Uh, he's already listed some of the common experience of life: happy home, leisurely meals in verse seven; joyful family celebrations in verse eight; a faithful, loving marriage in verse nine; and, of course, hard work. You can enjoy hard work in verse ten. You know, this is a real contrast to the conventional wisdom in our society for happiness. You know, fast food and a full schedule. The addictive pursuit of anything new and the so-called live-in marriages that characterize our culture and shortcuts to help you avoid work and still get rich quick. This is just the opposite formula that Solomon lays out for us for real happiness. You know, it's interesting, though, if you look listen carefully in our society, there are voices calling us back to the old traditions. There are people that are beginning to recognize that there was a value in the traditional walks of life. There's a, people are recognizing there, there is an emptiness in living on substitutes. They want more, something more substantial than the right labels in their clothes or the right names to drop in the right places and so forth. It's sort of like the younger brother in the, in the famous, uh, story of the prodigal son where he, uh, he finally discovers that everything that was really important was back home with his father and the other the other thought that's obviously emerges here is to really enjoy your work boy if you're if you're enjoying your work you're a happy person if you're doing work that you don't enjoy that can be a heavy a heavy thing on your back and uh, you know, look people that really enjoy their work have an incredible blessing you know the jewish people looked upon work not as a curse but as a stewardship from god and there's even an expression that uh, you know work at home is a kind of prayer. Working on your home or plowing your own field is a kind of prayer, is the expression they use. Every rabbi learned a trade. That was one of the requirements. He had to learn a trade. Now, Paul was a tent maker, for example. And he says, he reminds them that he does not work and or and teaches son to work, uh teaches him to steal. That's an old biblical prayer. And Paul wrote, If you if any would not work, neither should he eat. Second Thessalonians three. Or do it all with, all with all your might is the way the NASB deals with this. And also Paul in Colossians 3:17 says, "Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So all the things that we find enjoyment in will not be in the grave, Show of the realm of the dead. So make the most opportunities now, a sort of the flavor of what Solomon's suggesting here. Now one day our works will be judged, and we'll want to receive a reward uh, for his glory. Now, this the first ten verses are on this death theme, if you will, using that as his anvil for his thoughts. But the next, the rest of this chapter, emphasizes that life is unpredictable. How many have noticed that? You notice that life is unpredictable, huh? Okay. Psalm says, "I returned and I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor riches to the men of understanding." nor yet favored to men of skill, but time and chance happens to them all. See, our abilities are no guarantee of success. You can't, as they say, you can't assure success. You can only endeavor to deserve it. Now, it's generally true, of course, the fastest runner, you know, runners win the races, the strongest soldiers do win the battles and so forth, but it's a general rule. It's not, it's not a certainty. The same gifted people can fail miserably. Because their factors get out of their control. In fact, you know, there have been studies of, of successful executives. And you'll find people heading companies that aren't necessarily the brightest, best educated, what have you. The only common thread that they found among the success, successful ones is perseverance. Perseverance. A successful person does, of course, know how to make the most of time and procedure. But only the Lord can control time and chance, as expressed here. Proverbs 16.33 the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. The lot is in the lap of the Lord, in other words. You know, it's interesting. There are two concepts in mathematics that you cannot find in the physical universe. One of them is infinity. We can define it. We know what it is mathematically. We can't find it in physical things. The, if you look at the, in the large scale, the, the great discovery of 20th century science is that the universe is finite. It's not infinite. And that's what led to the Big Bang, the realization that then it must have had a beginning. It's, not, it's finite. And at the microcosm, on the, on the small side of things, you think things could get infinitely small. They've discovered that's not true. You can't get a length that's less than 10 to the 30, minus 33 centimeters. You can't find a unit of time smaller than 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Because they discover that length, mass, energy, time, all these things are quantized. They're made up of individual units. They're digitized or quantized. That's what, that's what they mean by the field of quantum physics. It's a study of those things. It's a real shocker. We're in a simulation, so to speak, that is bounded digitally at the smallest end, at the biggest end. It's finite. And, uh, that's disturbing. And the more you study that, the more disturbing it is. One of the early quantum physicists committed suicide because he could, he understood the implications of that and he couldn't handle it. If you've seen the movie The Thirteenth Floor, in which the plot depends on being in a virtual reality in, in some surprising ways, is a very, very provocative uh, piece of work. Well, there's another concept in mathematics, besides infinity, that we can't find in the physical universe. That's randomness. We speak of randomness, something random chance, and we construct mathematical models that are useful in that they're what they're technically called pseudo-random numbers and uh, such. That's what led to the field, a new field of mathematics called theory of chaos. But they've discovered even, even the concept of randomness is elusive in, in the physical universe. Now, you know, Solomon had already affirmed that God has a time for everything. Remember chapter 3, a time for this, and a time for that, and so on. A purpose to be fulfilled in that time, and so on. The assurance from chapter 8 that something beautiful would come out of that at the end. But Christians, obviously, do not depend on luck or chance for a lot of other reasons. Our confidence is in the providence of God. And uh, you see, a, a true Christian does not carry around a rabbit's foot or a lucky charm of some kind or has lucky days or lucky numbers. Every day is holy to the Lord. So, Okay, let's go to verse 12. For man also knoweth not his time as the fishes that are taken in an evil net or as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. In other words, who knows when trouble will fall, come on the scene? And wasn't it Bobby Burns that said, uh, the best laid plans of mice and men gang after the lay? I think I got that right. I forgot, meant to look that up before I made my notes here. So when you're least expected, the fish are, fish are caught or birds are caught, whatever, men too are snared. And uh, and that's one reason that in chapter 11, that'll be into next time, Solomon is going to emphasize diversification in your investments because you don't know what a day brings forth. He's very strong on diversification. We'll talk a lot about that and its implications in our, in our subsequent session. And that's also, this is also why we should take very, very much to heart uh, James's admonitions against boasting in James chapter 4. But let's you and I keep moving so we make it because we've got another chapter to go here. Uh, verse 13. This wisdom have I seen also under the sun and it seemed great to me. There was a little city and few men within it, and there came a great king against it, and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, and yet no man remembered that same poor man. Now it's not quite clear from this little anecdote that Psalm includes here whether the wise man actually delivered the city, or whether he could have saved it, and, and was asked, but it was not heeded. Some commentators, Wiersbe and others, who I respect very highly in this area particularly, uh, he says he leans to the second explanation, because it fits better with the verses that follow, verses 16 through 18, which we'll at in a minute. The Hebrew here allows for the translation, he could have, he could have uh, delivered the city. And other words, the little city was besieged, and uh, the wise men could have delivered it, but nobody paid any attention to him, as the thought seemed to be contained in the Hebrew. Let's go take a look at verse 16. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. See, the tone of this is that he could have saved it, but nobody would listen to him. The words of the wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. See, verse 17 suggests that the ruler had a loud mouth, and he got all the attention and led the people into defeat. The wise man spoke quietly, but was ignored. So the opportunity for greatness was frustrated by one loud, ignorant man. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, and one sinner destroyeth much good. Now that truth is illustrated throughout Scripture. Adam and his disobedience with God in chapter 3, amplified in Romans 5. Remember when Achan sinned and brought defeat on the army of Israel in Joshua chapter 7. remember that. David's sin brought trouble to Israel, Second Samuel 24. And, of course, the revolt of Absalom led the nation into civil war, ultimately, in 2 Samuel and so on. Since death is unavoidable and life is unpredictable, the only course that's really available to the wise is to yield ourselves into the hands of God and walk by faith in His Word. We don't live by explanations, we live by promises. We don't depend on luck, but on the providential working of our loving Father. We trust his promises and we obey his will. And if we walk by faith, then we have no fear of the last enemy that Solomon introduced this uh, in this section. Why? Because Jesus has conquered death. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore, Jesus said in Revelation chapter one. What was up that way? And because he is alive and we live in him, we don't look at life and say vanity of vanities. Solomon may say that we can't. Instead, we can echo the confidence expressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Which leads us then to chapter 10. This is could be called the danger of folly, chapter 10. The danger of folly. The word folly occurs about nine times in this chapter. Dead flies cost the anointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly in him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. Now he, he had already compared a good name, a reputation, to a fragrant perfume back in chapter 7. He's going to use this image again. See, what dead flies are to perfume, that's what folly is to one's reputation. In other words, uh, the conclusion is obviously that wise people will stay away from folly. Or somebody said, one whoops can erase 50 attaboys, so to speak. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. I love this verse. sounds like a partisan political statement to me. A wise man's heart is at the right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. But... uh, That's really not what he's taken about. You can you can quote that to the left hand liberals if you like, but uh, that's really (laughs) that's really I don't think what what Solomon has in mind. He also when he that is a fool walketh by way his wisdom faileth him and he saith to everyone that he is a fool. See that when he's talking about the heart here he's not obviously not talking about the physical organ of the heart has nothing to do with wisdom or folly. He's referring to this when he speaks of the center of life the master control within us when he says heart if you will that governs the issues of life. And in the ancient world, by the way, it's interesting that the right hand was always the place of power and honor. And the left hand represented weakness and rejection. And uh, many people consider the left to be, un, you know, unlucky. Uh, the English word sinister, it's an English word meaning left. The French word gauche, use that word in a social sense. He's gauche, I mean, clumsy is, it means left. Uh, we have sinister and dexter. Sinister is left; dexter is right. But we, the word sinister has come to mean that which is evil, or that which is less, or whatever. And uh, if you've studied sculpt, the ancient, the, the classical art, uh, probably best exemplified by Rodin, the sculptor, you'll notice that the hand of God, his famous uh, thing, is it's always a right hand. He has a very famous um, sculpture called the Cathedral. It's two hands, just in pra- in an attitude of prayer. It's very well known. If you go to the Philadelphia Roseanne Museum, you'll see it featured there among all those other things. But many people don't notice the two hands that make up Rodin's Cathedral are both right hands. It's two people. It's not one person with both hands. There's two right hands. Which is kind of interesting. But again, see, it's that classic concept that right is good and left is, is, is evil. And that's sort of What's behind the the verse here? And, of course, the the fool doesn't have wisdom in his heart, so he gravitates to that which is wrong. Wrong, that is the left. And thus he gets into trouble. People try to correct him, but he refuses to listen and tells everybody thus that he's a fool by not listening to the correction. And so now what Solomon, having laid down this idea, is going to apply it to four different fools. And the first one is the foolish ruler, starting in in verse 4. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. For There is an evil which I have seen under the sun as an error which proceedeth from the the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. If there's anybody that really needs wisdom, of course, it's the ruler. And uh, that's why when God asked Solomon what gift he wanted, he asked for wisdom. What a shrewd request, if you're going to rule people especially. Lyndon B. Johnson is quoted as having said, a president's hardest task is not to do what is right, it's to know what is right. And uh, it's tragic that uh, in today's educational environment, there is not even an acknowledgment that there is a thing called right or truth. I can remember um, my parents were from the old country. My dad was a very simple, practical guy. But his concept is you go to school to learn what's right and wrong. That's basically what you go to school for. And How shocked he would be if he discovered that today's schools don't even have, do not have that as a goal. They don't even acknowledge that right and wrong exists. Value relativism destroys, uh, not only does it create the sense of values, it destroys all purpose of education. That's what Alan Bloom de- develops in his famous book, The Closing of the American Mind, that in this pursuit of openness, we've actually closed our minds because we've de- discovered if, if there's really no truth and there's no real incentive to understand history because it, ha- it has no relevant lessons for the future. And that's, of course, utter nonsense, but it leads us to a closed mind and not an open mind, ironically enough. Anyway, uh, if the ruler, according to verse four, if the ruler is proud, he may do it and say foolish things. That'll cause him to lose the respect of his associates. And the picture here is, of course, that of a proud ruler and who easily becomes angry and takes his anger out on his attendants around him. And you can always spot a weak ruler by the strength of the people around him. If you're so insecure as to have weak, be surrounded by weak people, that's a real danger sign. The strong guys encourage constructive dissent as they joke around in business where two people agree one is unnecessary. (laughs) Proverbs 16.32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than he that mighty and he that rules a spirit more so than he that takes a city. Proverbs 25.28, Whosoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Now he goes on to point out that it's not necessary for servants to act like fools. In fact, that's the worst thing they can do. That was that was developed back in chapter eight. Also, you may recall, far better that they control themselves and stay right uh, where they can, they are, and seek to bring peace. Proverb twenty five fifteen. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Or Proverbs sixteen fourteen. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, but a wise man shall appease it. Now, of course, there is a place, a time, and a place for righteous anger. And it sometimes does need to be displayed. Ephesians 4 talks about that. But not everything that we call righteous indignation is either righteous, <laughs> it's uh, so easy to be motivated by uh, jealousy and malice, and then disguising them as a zeal for God. A crusader, his zeal can be a mask covering a hidden anger or jealousy for some other reason. But let's, uh, in verse 5, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and so forth. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in a low place. A ruler is too pliable; he's also a fool. He lacks courage and, and character and courage. I Remember seeing a, a, a uh, interesting in, in one of the offices of one of one of my bosses years ago. In his office, he had a, a backbone. It actually, it was a plastic one from one of these plastic skeleton sets, but it was just a backbone framed under glass, and it had a little sign that this is a backbone. You can't run a project without it. Never forgotten that. Now if a ruler has incompetent people advising him, he's obviously certain to be ruling the nation unwisely. And Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, was proud and unyielding, and that led to the civil war and dividing the division of the kingdom. So instead of following the advice of his counselors, he listened to his youthful friends and... uh, Made the elders walk and let the young put the young men on horses. The best rulers and leaders are men and women who are tough minded but tender hearted, who put the best people on the horses and don't apologize for it. That's sort of the flavor of the of verse 7. I've seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants. How ironic it was. That's exactly, in effect, what Rehoboam did. Well, his next series of verses from 8 to 11 will be about foolish workers. He started with the rulers. Now you talk about the workers. He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it, and whoso breaketh a hedge, a serpent shall bite him. Whoso removeth stone shall be hurt therewith, and he that cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. If an iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, then must he put two more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. Bear in mind, these are translations, and... and uh, so, uh, it, it's be suggested What Psalm is focusing on here are people who attempted to do their work but suffered by not doing it smartly. Our commentators are quite divided about this section because the, the point is you know, they're not agreed in what his real points are. It's, the, the translations are difficult. Is he saying that every job is, has its occupational hazards? If so, what was the lesson he was teaching, and why take so much space to illustrate the obvious? His theme is folly. And so he's not teaching that hard work is foolish, because you might get injured. That's not what he's trying to say. And uh, all the way through uh, the book, Psalm's going to emphasize the value of honest labor and the joys it can bring. So why should he contradict his message here? And it's Wearsby, I think that highlights that what he's really talking about is that people are doing, trying to do their work, but they're not doing it. They're doing it foolishly. They're not doing it smart. One man dug, you know, dug a pit, but is it, it may have been a well or a place for storing rain, but he fell in the pit himself. Why? because he apparently didn't take the proper precautions. And frequently, the, the, the Scripture uses this as a picture of retribution, but that doesn't seem to be the lesson here. And uh, another man broke through a hedge, a wall or a fence, perhaps while remodeling his home, or, and a serpent bit him. Now, serpents found their ways into hidden crevices and so forth. The man should have been more careful. He was overconfident and didn't, you know, look ahead. Verse 9 takes us into the quarries and forests where careless workers are injured, cutting stones or splitting logs. And uh, verse 10 talks about the foolish worker par excellence. He's a man who tried to split wood with a dull axe. The wise worker will pause and sharpen it. In other words, don't work harder, work smarter. It's basically the flavor that would tend to unify these messages. That's why I think Wiersbeck's handle on this is better than all the other ones I've seen. Verse 11, surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and the babbler is no better. Now, he's, the <laughs> babbler is a, the Hebrew actually is the master of the tongue. See, you have to understand, snake charmers were common in those days as entertainers. Uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, the snakes have no, uh, no ears. They pick up the sound waves primarily through the bone structure of their head. So the more music, I should say, more than the music played by the charmer, it's the man's disciplined actions, the swaying and, and the staring that hold the snake's attention and keep keep the serpent under control. This apparently is really the the secret to the art form.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.